to the book of 1 Corinthians as we come to the end of this book, the end of our study. We've been looking at uh, the book of 1 Corinthians since uh, January of 2010. And we have come now to chapter 16 and we'll be looking at the last and final exhortations, encouragements for a church that has been in some disarray for some time. Encouragements and final exhortations in verse 13 of chapter 16. 1 Corinthians chapter 16 verse 13 and we will be reading to the end of the book. The scriptures read, verse 13, Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Now I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanus, that they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for ministry to the saints that you also be in subjection to such men and to everyone who helps in the work and labors. I rejoice over the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have supplied what was lacking on your part, for they have refreshed my spirit and yours. Therefore, acknowledge such men. The churches of Asia greet you, Aquila and Priscilla, greet you heartily in the Lord. And the church that is in their house, all the believers greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. The greeting is in my own hand, Paul. If anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed. Maranatha. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. I pray, O Father, you would be honored through your word. That you would fill me with your spirit, that your word might be divided rightly. And Father, that you would open the eyes of our heart, that we might see great and mighty things which we do not yet know. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Christianity Today reported about a church, a congregation called the Church of God in Christ in Wichita, Kansas, that had asked the court to stop four of the members from disrupting services. Uh, Bishop Grace Kinnard said four have run through the sanctuary moaning and shouting while he tried to conduct services. He alleged that they shut the pastor's Bible while he was preaching, took away the pastor's microphone and hit him over the head and pinned down the pianist's arms. Police have tried to step in several times and the congregation has dwindled from 600 to 50 because of the trouble, complains the bishop. The trouble apparently stems from a battle over control of the church, say police, unquote. Sad, sad story. 
But like many churches, the church at Corinth was a church that was experienced a very bad season. It was filled with all sorts of problems. We look through and some people say, boy, I wish we were like the church in the first century. Not until they read this book. This particular church suffered, as we've seen over the course of over a year and a half, divisions and factions. They suffered from pride. They suffered from those who were misusing spiritual gifts. They suffered from believers who were suing one another in lawsuits. There was pride in the congregation. They tolerated immorality in the church. They had a lack of love. There were those who were wealthy and had lots of food and they diminished the Lord's Supper by displaying their selfishness and ignoring those who had nothing. There were those who would speak out of turn. There were those who were wanting the limelight and the speaking of tongues. There were those who wanted what they wanted and they were priding themselves in what they knew. They were the poster child of a juvenile, delinquent, dysfunctional church with little, very little to commend about it. They were a profile. A profile like that. I don't know who would want to go to a church like that. I'm sure that if they had pastors, they would probably, after a short time, shake their hands off and brush the dust off of their feet and leave. But not Paul. Not Paul. He loved them. In his closing remark, as we see in verse 24, he says to them, My love be with you all. In Christ Jesus, amen. Like a parent's love for their ornery child, he still loved these people. No matter what was happening, no matter how difficult they were, no matter how they may have responded, because some were opposing Paul, it didn't matter. It was that love that he had, that troubling church needed. And he gives them here in the final verses of this letter, of a long letter that was written to them about eight things, eight things, eight exhortations, eight encouragements, eight commands to encourage them. This is what I want you to remember to be right with God. Maybe it's like the last words that you might say to your teenager as they leave the house. Son, these are the things I want you to remember before you go off to college. Or daughter, these are the things I want you to remember before you get married and start your own family. These are the last thoughts of Paul and he writes them here. And the first thing that he encourages them to do is he says in verse 13, be alert, be alert. Other versions translate that little command by saying, be on your guard, or be watchful, or you could translate it as, be diligent, be vigilant, be very careful, be watchful. You know, today, one of the things that we're finding and experiencing publicized in the past few years is the whole issue in our laws that are being passed against those who, what, talk on their cell phones while they drive. Now, it's a primary offense in Washington State, and you can get pulled over for it. Simply, if some policeman sees you talking on your cell phone, you can be pulled over simply for that. Why? Because so many drivers are distracted. It's one of the main causes of accidents. I remember when I was working in the 1990s, I had a boss who came into work. 
And he had been pulled over. This was before the laws were enacted. And he had come into the office because he was talking on his cell phone with one hand, typing on his laptop on another hand, and driving with his knee. And the cop pulled him over and made him put everything. He was so mad, he paid him to put everything in the trunk and lock his trunk. Because he wasn't alert. It would be like uh, that of Paul saying, Be watchful, be careful, be on alert. Not like some security guard who might be, you know, watching wrestling and eating donuts when he's supposed to be watching what's happening. The Bible frequently uses this idea, this idea of being alert, being sober minded, particularly in explicit ways. One way that Paul writes to Timothy about his alertness is he's to be alert against false teachers and false Ideas, For he says in 2 Timothy, For a time will come when they will no longer endure sound a doctrine, but wanting their ears to be tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires, and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. There you go. Endure hardship. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. Be sober-minded in all things. It wasn't implying that Timothy was inebriated. He was implying that he needed to be alert against the things that would come. And we are to be as well. We're to be thinking Christians. Christians who think. Christians who take every thought captive. Christians who think biblically who think theologically, who think objectively. Many people think they think, but the way they think is they think maybe subjectively or with their emotions or they think pragmatically. What works? And when they look at the scriptures, they say, well, that doesn't quite strive, you know. In my experience, it's like this. And they will follow what they have experienced rather than what the scriptures say. Ideas may come from television or the media. Ideas might come from their friends or from personal experience. Many times those ideas are not biblical. There's even an aspect when we worship, we sing these songs. We're to be thinking, worshiping with our mind. What are we saying by the words that we're singing? Many of the songs are so familiar, but what are we saying to God? We're to be thinking, to be careful But the things we hear in school, perhaps, the things that we hear from coworkers, the advice we're given, is it biblical? Is it true? Or is it false? We're to be alert. Another area that is explicitly said about being alert is be alert to temptation. As Jesus says to his disciples, keep watching and praying that you will not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak in Mark 14, 38. You know, an old discipleship journal article listed, they took a survey among all of the readers. They ranked the greatest spiritual challenges to them. Greatest sources of temptation. And all the readers, they submitted what they felt were the greatest temptations. And these were the top ones. Number one, materialism. Number two, pride. Number three, self-centeredness. Number four, laziness. And a tie for fifth was anger and sexual temptation. The respondents noted that the temptations were more potent when they had, number one, 80%, four out of five, said they would fall more 
easily when they had neglected their time with God. When they had neglected their time with God. And secondly, when they were physically tired. When they had neglected their time with God because our minds are not filled with the things of God. And if we are not in the Word of God on a regular basis, of course, our response to situations are not going to be pleasing to God. Temptation is another area that we're to be alert about. Not just false teachers and not just temptation, but thirdly, the coming of Jesus. The coming of Jesus in Matthew twenty four forty two. Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. The parable of the ten virgins or the parable of the faithful steward. Draw our attention to the fact that Jesus could come at any time. So what type of life are we living? And so here Paul tells him, be alert. He tells these Corinthians, be alert, be sober-minded, be watchful. In the areas that you know that I have taught you. Secondly, he tells them to stand firm in the faith. Stand firm in the faith. Now, the faith here is not saving faith. It's not about salvation or merely having faith. It is the Christian faith. It is the body of truth. It is faith that is referenced in Jude chapter 3. Jude chapter 3. If you look in your Bibles, it is the little book right before the book of Revelation. Jude 3. It's just one chapter, so it names all of the verses as that verse. So, Jude 3. It says, Jude writes there, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, he says, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. A couple of things here. Number one, faith here refers to the body of truth that has been given to us. Secondly, it has been once for all handed down to the saints. There is no additional Bible or book of the Bible that's still needed to be discovered. There's nothing that will continue to be added to the Word of God. It has been once for all handed down to the saints and we are to contend to fight for that truth that was given to us as believers, as children of God. And that is what we're to take a stand on, to take a stand, a firm stand, a firm stand to fight for it, to contend for it, to be strong in what is true. Because a lot of times, I'll tell you what, people do not care, do not care about what is true. When they look for a, a church or a ministry or they evaluate something, what is high on their list? As I've shared with you before, more churches have split over the subject of music than they have over the subject of doctrine. What's important? What's important is not the good music or a good children's program or the demographics. What is true is most important. What their doctrine is, what their beliefs are, what their philosophy of ministry is. So when a professor or a teacher or a friend challenges your faith, then stand firm. Don't back down. Don't cave in. When you're ridiculed, stand firm. Be alert, stand firm. Thirdly, act, it says, act like men. The idea behind that word is actually act mature. Be mature, be brave. It is a sentiment that is here in this word. The idea is to be mature, to act mature. I mean, babies who act like babies are cute. 
Adults who act like babies are not. Many Christians in the church are not mature in their thinking. They're not mature in their understanding and immature in their spiritual lives. As you turn in the Bible once again to the book of Hebrews, just a few books over here in Hebrews, chapter 5. The author of Hebrews writes in chapter 5, and we look at verses 12 and 13. And he has a lot to say. In fact, he says in Hebrews 5, verse 11, he says, Concerning him we have much to say, and it's hard to explain since... You have become dull of hearing. It is as if the picture might be that they have had their ears full of earwax. And so he says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature who, because of practice, have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Through practice you discern good and evil, but it is for the mature that understand and know. And these believers here, do you know how long it has been these believers have been Christians? Just a few years. Just a few years. And this writer says, you know what, by now, you ought to be teaching others. Have you been a Christian for more than a few years? Have you been a Christian for more than a year? More than two? More than three? Are you taking what you've learned and teaching somebody else? I'll tell you, in this culture, in this society, there's really little excuse We have all sorts of means to learn the Word of God, whether it's a small group or Sunday school. You can even go online and take free seminary-level courses, Bible school, Bible teachers that are good, solid teachers. There are conferences and workshops and speakers that we can all go to and learn so that we can be mature, so that we can pass on what we have learned, been entrusted in, so that we can be strong. Mature. That is what he tells them to do. Act mature. Grow in your maturity. And fourthly, he tells them to be strong. To be strong. And this refers to inner spiritual strength. Be strong. Fourthly, it's in the passive voice, meaning that it is God who helps me to be strong. It is God who helps you to be strong. It is God. Spiritual strength doesn't come. By simply telling somebody, pull up your bootstraps, get your act together, do this. It's not a a legalistic following of religious rules. It comes not from accountability. It comes from God. We beg of God to strengthen us through the Word of God. And that's what God does. The Spirit of God works in your life and my life as a Christian. He takes the Word of God and reminds us of the things that we ought to know and how we are to live. And He teaches us along the way. But if we don't know the Word of God, if we're not learning the Word of God, if the Word of God does not dwell within us richly like Colossians 3.16 tells us, then it is so much more difficult to be strong. A strong Christian 
has an easier time resisting temptation, whereas a younger Christian might fall so much more easily. A strong Christian will be growing in their trust in God and won't be phased when circumstances come by because they can rise above those circumstances, whereas a younger or weaker Christian fails and sees and is swept away by their emotions and drawn sometimes in their trust to doubt God. A stronger Christian trusts in God's hand, whereas perhaps a younger Christian would fall prey, a weaker one, to worry and fear and anxiety because their trust is not in God, their trust is in something else. A strong Christian isn't easily disillusioned isn't easily dissuaded when people have all sorts of criticisms against their faith. But one who doesn't know the Word of God, well, they struggle because there are doubts that may come in. He tells them to be strong. Fifthly, He tells them to be motivated by love. To be motivated by love. Verse 14, Let all that you do be done in love. That is the unconditional, this word here, the unconditional type of love, the agape love, where the motivation is, what is the best for someone else? What is the best for someone else? doesn't matter whether or not you or I like or love someone. This is the, this is the type of love that says, love your enemies. Love your enemies. We want to love them. We choose to love them. We're to love people, irregardless of our feelings. This is the type of love we're commanded when there is the husband and wife and maybe there's conflict. We're to love. It's not some sort of love that is ushy-gushy sentimentality. It's not mere friendship. Not romantic love. Those are two different words, phileo and storge. But a love that looks out for what is best for someone else. When you love your child, you'll discipline them, right? It may not make you feel the best. It may not make them for sure feel the best. But we discipline or we rebuke or we speak the truth in love. Why? Because they need to hear what is true. Why? Because we care about them. We want what is best and true love will speak what is true and does its best for the glory of God and the good of the other person. And this is a major theme throughout the New Testament. John, John as an author in the scriptures, he writes a lot about love. And he says, you know what? If we do not love, he says, we do not love God in essence. Paul in his letter to Rome, he says at the end, he says, oh, no man, anything but love. Jesus, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then in the earlier chapters, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 13, we can do everything. We can have all the gifts in the world. We can be the most eloquent. We can give up even our bodies to be burned and to die for someone else. But we have not love. It means nothing. It means nothing. To be motivated by love. Let all that you do be done in love. Sixthly, He encourages these Corinthians to submit to and to recognize God's servants. Submit to and recognize God's servants. He says, Now I urge you, brethren, you know that the household of Stephanus, they were the firstfruits of Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves for the ministry of the saints. 
Now Stephanus and the members of his household were the first to turn to Christ in Achaia. And they were, that in Achaia was in southern Greece, that is the, the area in which Athens and Corinth were. He was the first fruits. It's a term that referred to the first of the crop that came in. And it was going to be representative and of a person's trust that the rest of the harvest would also come in like this very first fruit. And when Paul wrote this letter to the Corinthians, they were the harvest that had come in. Stephanus was the first. And when Paul had gone there in the beginning... When he had gone to Athens, he preached to the Athenians and many of them were skeptical and rejected the gospel. Some of them believed in Acts 17 and 34. But from Athens, the Apostle Paul went to Corinth. And when he had spent the first few weeks there, he had spent the first few weeks preaching in the synagogues. And he spent time in the synagogues ministering to the Jews. And he wanted to reach them because, you know, if he had gone to the Gentiles first, then the Jews would not have received the gospel or would not have been so open to it. But they resisted these Jews. It says in Acts chapter 18, verse 6, they resisted, they blasphemed, and Paul left them. Now, a few Jews came to know Christ, such as Crispus in verse 8. He trusted in Christ, but the majority of the Corinthian church were Gentiles. They came to know Christ and Stephanus and his household were among the first fruits. And he was one of the few, Paul says, in verse 16 of this book, chapter 1, that he baptized personally. It's likely visiting Paul in Ephesus at the time. And he and his household, of course, included not his own family, but perhaps his servants as well. And it's interesting that he says here in verse 15, they were devoted, they had devoted themselves to the work, it says. You know what the King James translates this as? The old King James Version translates the word devoted as addicted. Addicted. The work to them was a devotion. They were addicted, they were devoted completely all in. They were all in to the ministry that God had opened the door for them to do. They didn't wait around. They didn't wait around for somebody to say, you know what? Hey, you're sitting around. Would you like to help out with this? No, they took the initiative, the personal initiative, because there was plenty of work to be done. Many times it's easy not to see the work that needs to be done. And we want people to say, hey, you know what, Stephanus, I think you could do well in this or whatever it might be. It wasn't like that. John MacArthur quotes William Barclay. He says, quote, in the early church, willing and spontaneous service was the beginning of official office. A man became a leader of the church, not so much by any man-made appointment, as because his life and work marked him out as one whom all men must respect. All those who share in the work and toil of the gospel command respect, not because they have been appointed by a man to an office, but because they are doing the work of Christ. Because they are doing the work of Christ. This is the same sentiment... This is the same sentiment that Paul, in the earlier chapter, last week, we looked at it in verse 10 of chapter 16. He says, look, Corinthians, now if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid. Don't scare him off, okay? Why? For he is doing the Lord's work. 
He's doing God's work. So don't scare him off. Treat him well. Because it is the work that he is doing. Treat these men with respect. Why? Because of the work that they are doing. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, the qualifications of an elder says, If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work that he desires to do. It is the work. The point of being or having an aspiration to the position is because of the work. Not merely to an office. Not to aspire to power or to some influence. Because all of that would pervert the office. The motive is that of an aspiration for the work that is to be done. The work and because of that work they were to acknowledge and submit to these men. It's because of the work that these Corinthians were to have respect, not only for Timothy, but for Stephanus and all of those who would serve. It's because of the work. Seventhly, Paul exhorts them, verse 19 and 20, to show hospitality, to show hospitality to other believers. He says, the churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Prisca greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. All the brethren greet you and greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this was a problematic church and you can imagine what it must have been like. You can imagine maybe they were saying, should we say hello? Should we associate ourselves with a church that is tolerating immorality, which has splits, which has lawsuits, which has all sorts of chaos or whatever it might be during the worship service, which has defamed the Lord's table? Greet them. They greeted them. Now, in the New Testament times, if a person was a Christian and they were traveling around, they were ministering, very common. Very common that other believers would find solidarity with them. They'd open the door to their house and let them stay, feed them, help them. They would stay as they moved about. And the idea of greeting one another with a holy kiss is, was, their, was their way of a, a greeting. It was either on the cheek or on the forehead. and was common in those days in that culture. It would be likened today maybe to the handshake or giving somebody a hug, the greeting, the warm welcome of hospitality. And the greeting from the churches and the individuals was an expression of their solidarity with this church. Sure, you're having problems, but we care, and we care about you. And it ought to be the same way for us as Christians, us as Christians who have homes and lives. We open the doors of our lives to share with others. We open the doors of our home. Our home's not our private castle in which we only lower the drawbridge a few times for our personal friends. You know, growing up, I remember... My father, he had a, a regular habit of going to the hardware store. I mean, it was always during rush hour as well. A little bit before five o'clock, he'd say, you know what, I'm going to go to the hardware store. And we had one hardware store. I mean, I grew up in Georgetown over there by Bowling Field. And there was one hardware store in that little community. It was a little hardware store, True Value. Before that, it was some other mom and pop type of a hardware store. But to him, it must have been like a second home. I mean, he would go there every day almost. Same workers would be there. 
He'd probably more than recognize them. Yes, he would. He would tell me. And of course, you know, they knew who he was. They recognized him. They'd have all sorts of things, all sorts of odds and ends that you might have a hard time finding elsewhere. The service was personal, you know. Sometimes dad would send me down there or I'd follow dad. And he'd say, oh yeah, ask so-and-so for such and such and they'll help you. It should be about this price. And I'd go down there. Hi, you're Mr. Lamson or whatever it might be. He looked forward, of course, seeing some employees. That's how it was back in the 80s and stuff until the big box stores moved in. Big box became much more popular and the little guys, well, they had to close down. And now I go to Home Depot, 50 foot ceilings in the air, many aisles. I want to find what I need. It's on aisle 24A on the end cap. You'll find it there. And if I need help, well, there's a guy with an orange apron. I do my 25-yard dash down there and I ask them, hey, where's this thing? And they, um, uh, I don't know. I'm I'm actually from the paint department. They called me over here because they were short on people. But maybe you can ask, let me call for some help. Five minutes later, they really don't know what you need. I'll tell you, the only guys I know are the tool rental guys. They know me. I know them. There's only a few of them working there. Oh, are you working on your uh, wood floors again or whatnot? Everybody. They don't really get it. It's like a bunch of bees that are moving around. I'm afraid that's happened too. In our society, as a people, we have the big box store mentality. Everybody's going about their own business. I've got my own schedule. And if somebody happens to catch you, you direct them to someplace else. You can't find what you need. No one knows your name. Maybe they might ask. Maybe. Somebody different. But Christian hospitality isn't to be like that. Christian hospitality is to be more like the mom and pop who just wants and wants your interests and has your interests in mind. They don't know your name, but they might ask you your name and they'll take you to where you need to go. Because why? They simply care. They care. You know, one of the qualifications of an elder is that to be hospitable. And that is an aspiration that we're all to be hospitable. That word means a lover of strangers. To be a lover of strangers. To care about somebody you don't even know about. To not walk by somebody as if you were the person wearing the apron and saying... What's your name? How can I help you? And to talk with them, to love them, and to greet them. Just as Paul says here, be warm. This is what all the churches, to be warm and hospitable to other believers and to say and to greet them and not think, oh, well, let them find it on their own. must be in the yard outside. (laughs) How much do we care? Eighthly, He says to them, lastly, be warned, be warned of those who do not love God. Verse 22, if anyone does not love the Lord, he is to be accursed, Maranatha. And here love is the word phileo, it's the brotherly love, it's the love that we're to have affection for one another. And it's not as intense as agape love, but the point here being is, If you have a minimal affection for the Lord, you're going to even show that by your life. Those that don't even show a minimal affection towards the Lord, 
They're going to be accursed, separated from God. And what he puts here, Maranatha, it's an Aramaic term meaning, Oh Lord, come. Or our Lord, come. And it is expression of the heart of Paul, who desires to be away, separated from those who would bring destruction to the church. And a warning for us. And the question for us is, do we truly love God? What is it in your life that shows that you love God? Jesus says it well. He says, if anyone loves me, he will what? Keep my word. And my Father will love him. Or First John, it says, do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Do we keep God's word? Do we love others as ourselves? Do we love God or do we love this world? Is the cry of the heart, Oh, Lord, come. Paul's last words for these believers in the expression of his love, My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. We come to the end of this book and we look back at this church. We look back at this Corinthian church and we have a lot to learn. We have a lot that reflects perhaps even our own life. A lot that may say, you know what, my life has division in the relationships I have. My life has pride that I need to deal with. My life has a misuse of spiritual gifts. My life has a lot of selfishness. My life wants to sue my brethren. My life is perhaps a single individual and I don't know what to do. My life is perhaps married to a non-Christian. My life perhaps has immorality which has infected my life much like this church. Or my life has some type of idolatry in it in which I think certain things are more important than God. Maybe my life is not mature and there's false teaching. Or maybe we feel like, you know what, this is like our family. Dysfunctional. These last encouragements are for us to be alert and to stand firm. To be mature and to be strong. And to do all in love and to be submissive. To show hospitality and to be forewarned. That if my heart and my love is not for God, I need to make that right. And lastly, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. The hope is the same hope I'm sure Paul had for this church that was so dysfunctional that nothing is too difficult for Jesus to overcome. By the grace of God, nothing is too difficult for Jesus to overcome. No situation, no experience, no sin, no guilt that God cannot forgive, that God cannot wipe away. No one is perfect, no family is perfect, no relationship is perfect, no husband and wife are perfect. But we can, by the grace of God, rise above our circumstances and find hope because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, you see through us like glass. And you can see our hearts. 
And so, Father, I pray that you would minister to each and every heart here. You know their struggles. You know their pain. You know, O God, the secrets that they harbor. I pray, O Father, that you would forgive us for our sin. By your grace, O God, may we be strong and mature. May we live with joy, a reliance upon you. May we live in peace. May we do all things for your glory with the motivation of love. We ask, O Father, that as we have studied this book, you, O Father, would refine us in the fire of trials, that we might come out as gold, pure gold, vessels useful for you. In Jesus' most precious name, amen.